Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Well, it's good to be with you and to worship with you. Um, thank you for singing and engaging and joining in with this worship. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Jason, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I have the great privilege uh, to preach God's Word for us today. So if you do have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis, the book of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and um, we're going to be looking at verse 1 through 7. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. These words come to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, They come to us by the will of God by the will of His Son, Jesus. And so let's hear together the Word of Christ. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you may not eat of the fruit of the trees uh, that are in the midst of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I uh, have a group of friends, and we read a book or so a month, and we're in this, uh, we're reading right now a very famous book, one of the most famous books of the 20th century, Man's Search for Meaning, and I think I read this book in college, but you know how it goes when you read a book in college, uh, and you're filling out a, I read the book report at the end, you know, you don't read it quite as uh, closely as you do when you're just reading it for pleasure later in life. So I'm getting a whole lot of things out of the book and I've uh, really been enjoying kind of rereading uh, this book. But it's made me think about uh, a very interesting time in the 20th century. It's, it's actually written by a psychiatrist who was a Holocaust survivor. And he, he actually survived four uh, death camps, uh, four of the most grueling death camps, including Auschwitz. Uh, but throughout the book, the thing that's interesting about the book is he, he can't stop doing psychiatry. He can't stop studying the environment that he is in. And so he's, he's psychoanalyzing himself uh, throughout the book and how he is responding to these incredibly difficult situations. And he's also psychoanalyzing everyone around him. It's, it's a fascinating book. Uh, and I, I don't want to talk to you today about the book, but it's, it's made me think about this very interesting time in global history, in world history, uh, called the Holocaust. Um, you know, after the Holocaust, uh, when the Allies came in and saw what was really happening, when the Germans learned uh, about what had really happened, everyone was horrified. 
everyone couldn't believe it. Uh, even the Germans, they, they couldn't believe that this had happened, that, that, that their own countrymen had done this. It, the people around the world, it, everyone was seeking an explanation. How could people be so cruel? How could such evil have persisted? And how could it have been so widespread? How could it have gone on uh, for so long? Because these weren't, as people kind of thought, these were, these were Germans. They, they were good European people, they were educated, they were Lutherans, they were religious. How could this evil have happened? And so in the late 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, a lot of things were written. A lot of books and plays and poems were written trying to explain the horrors of this horrible thing uh, that had happened. In fact, even now, if you, if you go to uh, Germany, if you go to Berlin, for example, Reichstag, which is like the... German capital. It, it has a glass roof uh, as if to say we need accountability. We, we never want this to happen again. Please look on us as we govern the people. All of the memorials to this era in German history are, are not happy memorials. They're, they're sad memorials. They're, they're, you can still go visit these concentration camps. They're, they're things like a bombed out church to remind uh, the German people and to, to remind global visitors of this horrible evil that once came upon the earth. And obviously the Holocaust in a very dramatic way made the world ask this question. How could such evil persist? How could such evil have happened? But, but this is a question that we have been asking from the very beginning of time. Where does this pain come from? Where does this evil come from? In fact, so often people reject God on the basis of some pain, on the basis of some evil, on the, on the basis of some horrible thing that's happened, that they were mistreated, they were abused. Someone in the church, a, a Christian, did something horrible to them. And, and on the basis of that, or maybe just another pain, they, they went through a pain in life, one of the normal pains of life, a, the loss of a loved one, but because of that pain, they, they rejected the idea of a good and benevolent God. It's also interesting to me how few worldviews actually try to give an explanation for the origin of evil or for the origin of pain. You know, Buddhism, for example, it, it acknowledges that evil exists in the world, but there is nowhere in, in an official kind of Buddhist literature that explains the origin of evil. Same thing with Hinduism. Same thing with the ancient Greeks. They, no one was trying to explain the, the, the actual origin of, of where these things came from. Of course, today we live in more of a secular, humanistic world. And, and I always say, you've heard me say before, but in secularism, in kind of a humanistic age, the, the problem with evil, the problems of the world, they're always blamed on the they, right? It's they, it's them, it's, it's their fault, right? You know, it's, it's someone else's fault. It's, it's these people out here, they're doing this thing, and if we could just get to them, if we could just change their minds, then the world would be a different place. If you're on the right, it's the terrorist. It's the, you know, the immigrants. It's the, uh, the Ivy League schools. It's the media. It's, it's their fault. They're the ones that are shaping the world in this negative way. If you're on the left, you know, it's people from Alabama or it's fundamentalists or it's, you know, evangelical Christians or whatever it is. It's they, it's they, it's they. There's always a them, you know, out there that's, that's corrupting the world. But Christianity is very different from this. Christianity's answer to the problem of evil actually begins uh, in a closer place, as we'll see. Beatrice Webb, who was uh, one of the 
She was the architect of the British welfare system. She, famous socialist and activist. She was a British leader. She kept a diary. This is early 20th century. And in 1925, she went back and read her diary. She said this, In my diary, 1890, I wrote, I have staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. Now, 35 years later, I realize, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts, not in them, but in us. And how little they seem to change. Like greed for wealth and power and how mere social machinery will never change that. Now this, keep in mind, this is a, a socialist system where the very foundation of her work is that the problems of the world are that we don't have the social systems to correct them. These social systems will solve the ills of the world. So she goes on, she says, we must ask better things from human nature. But will we get a response? No amount of science or knowledge has been of any avail and unless we curb, and I, I, this phrase that she uses is interesting, the bad impulse. How will we get better social institutions? That's an amazing admission. It, it leads to a lot of interesting questions. How is this impulse changed is one of them. We're, how do we change the bad impulse? But, but maybe more particularly today, I want to ask this question, where did the impulse come from? in the first place? Where did we get this bad impulse? Where did we get this problem with ourselves and our own hearts and our own desires? If you were with us last week, we started this sermon series called Understanding Everything. And I know that's a bold title for a sermon series, but our, our hope in this is that you would begin to understand everything as we look through this series through a biblical lens. What are the answers that the Bible is giving to the big questions of the world. And, and how do we as Christians really look at the world, look at our own lives, understand the world through a biblical worldview? If you were with us last week, we looked at the essence of being. Oh, how did everything come about? Where did everything come from in the first place? And, and if you were with us, we said that everything, then all of creation, is an overflow of God who is all good. It was created by His intention, by His design. It's an overflow of His character to express Himself, to show Himself, to display Himself. And, and His goal for us, his, his, uh, his objective in creation, is that we, the beings of His creature, creation, the, the, the things that He created, would join in the dance. Uh, you've heard me say this before, but the church fathers had this, this, this word that they used when they talked about God. How, how do we understand a Trinitarian God? How do we understand three persons being one God? And they had this, this word that was perichoresis, or the great dance, that, 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 that the Trinity, that God himself, though it is three, it is one. And there is this movement and there is this rhythm among the members of the Trinity that they, they dance together, if you will. And if you've seen people dance, if you've seen people that really know how to dance, when they're dancing, there is a fluidity to the motion. There is a unity of the motion. And when, when everyone's dancing to the same song, when everyone's doing their steps correctly, it, even though there may be many parts in the dance, it's as if it is one beautiful motion. You know, some of you, it's, you know, it's Christmas time, and uh, you've gone to see uh, the Nutcracker. In fact, Paige and Marianna, uh, yesterday, they went out to see the Nutcracker, you know, 
Gotta love the Nutcracker Christmas time. Well, what makes the Nutcracker work? You know, what makes the March of the Toy Soldiers, for example, what makes all that work? It's that everybody's dancing to the same song. It's that there's unity of motion. And, and there's a sense where this is God's design, that everyone would be dancing together, that all of creation would fall in order. But what happened? Where did this bad impulse come from? Where did, the, where did we get out of step, out of sync with the music that God had intended for us to be dancing to? And so in our text today, I think we actually can find a lot of answers of the problem of evil. And so these three questions I want to ask is, is what happened? Why did it happen? And how did it happen? What happened? Why did it happen? How did it happen? So what happened? Well, this is an interesting story. Genesis 3 tells an interesting story on many levels. It's hard if you're kind of a thinker to read a story like this and not find yourself, before you can ever really pay attention to the narrative, not find yourself asking some questions of the narrative. Uh, like, why was the tree in the middle of the garden anyway? Why was there a tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why was the serpent allowed into uh, the garden? And, and on and on and on. And in order to understand really what's going on in chapter 3, you have to go back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, we read about the formation of the man and the woman. And the Bible says, God says, that, that, that God put the man and the woman into the garden to work it and to keep it. And it's interesting, in chapter 2, verse 16, look at this. God gives the command to Adam. He says, You may surely eat of the trees of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. And again, a lot of people would say, Well, why, why was the tree in the garden? Why did God create the possibility for evil? Well, keep in mind, God did not create the world for you or for me. The creation of the world is not primarily about us. It is about God. God created the world for himself. God created the world, as I said last week, to display himself, to show himself, so that his characters, his essence, would be known. And there is no complete knowledge of good without knowledge of evil, right? How do you know what justice is? Because you know what injustices. How, how do you know what warm is? Because you know what cold is, right? There, there has to be a knowledge of evil. There has to be a knowledge of darkness in order to understand a knowledge of light. There has to be a knowledge of evil in order to have a knowledge of good. But listen to this. According to God's command, the knowledge of evil was to stay kept in the tree. It was never supposed to escape the tree, according to God's command, the knowledge of evil was not meant for the man. Don't eat the fruit. You'll, you'll die if you eat the fruit. God knew that this, this tree, if this knowledge of evil got out, it would mean destruction. It would mean pain. Don't eat the tree. That knowledge is not for you. And at least at first, Adam, you can imagine, does a pretty good job guarding the tree, protecting his wife. As I mentioned here, the, the, the command of God actually came before, in the, the scriptural narrative, the command came before the creation of the woman. And so you, you have to assume that Adam gave the command to Eve. Obviously, she knows the command in chapter 3. What's interesting about this, this is just kind of an aside, what's interesting about this is that 
When God gave the command to Adam, it was just a command not to eat of the fruit of the tree. When Eve repeats the command back to the serpent in chapter 3, what does she say? She says, we can't eat it. We can't even touch it. And I can almost imagine Adam and Eve walking in the garden and Eve just saying, oh, what's over here? And Adam says, whoa, whoa, whoa. stay away from that tree. In fact, let's just not touch that tree. Because if you touch it or you eat it, you will die. It's also interesting, you know, a lot of times people give Eve a hard time on this one. It's the woman's fault. But if you notice from the text, the man was with her the whole time. It was the man that God gave the responsibility of care and protection to. And, and throughout the Bible, when it talks about human sinfulness, it never refers to original sin as Eve's sin. It refers to it as Adam's sin. Sin came into the world through Adam. Now, theologians call this act, this sin, this eating of the fruit, original sin. This one sin, this one act, this one act of disobedience changed everything forever. Why? Because don't you see, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, when they took hold of the knowledge of evil, then evil went from an idea, it went from the knowledge of evil to actual evil. They had actually disobeyed. They set evil loose, if you will. Evil was allowed to penetrate their minds and their heart. And evil, just a little definition, evil is anything that goes against the will of God. When they disobeyed God and ate of the fruit of the knowledge of evil, evil came alive. And they're all of a sudden, for the first time ever, among, in their minds... In their minds was a notion of disobedience. There was a notion of evil. Evil is stepping out of God's rhythm. Evil is stepping out of the dance. Evil is beginning to dance to a different tune while still being on God's stage. You see, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, that evil went from being an idea to an actuality. It came alive. You know, it's no accident that this is referred to as fruit. When they tasted the fruit... It changed their minds. It changed their hearts forever. This evil penetrated us. You know, one of the, the greatest, just to illustrate this, one of the greatest things that my dad ever did for me, and if you're a dad or a parent, I, I can't tell you how much I recommend this, but one of the greatest things that my dad ever did for me was that he explained to me about sex and sexuality and sexual sin. At a very young age, you, know, you might even say almost like inappropriately young. I didn't think it was. But, but when I became of age, and these things started to become a reality about him, I, I wasn't ill-equipped. Th- these things weren't mysterious. I remember being at Matt Winstead's house in sixth grade, and him pulling out some magazines that his dad had. And I, I knew what to do. I knew to get away. I knew this wasn't good, because my dad had already talked to me about those things. And, you know, now through the years, as a pastor, and just as a friend, to see the damage that this evil entering into a 6th, 7th grade, 8th grade boy's mind of pornography can carry on throughout so many years and so much time, and the, the struggle that just goes on, and I'm so grateful to God and to my dad that I, I had the wisdom at even just a young age to get out, to get away, to not taste this knowledge. And, and that is a small example in a cosmic sense of what this sin did for humanity. A, an evil entered in 
that impacted the hearts, that impacted the minds of humanity forever. We tasted evil. The idea got out and it created the bad impulse. But this brings up the next question is why? We looked at what happened. What happened? Well, very simply, Adam and Eve disobeyed. They tasted evil. They tasted something that was never intended for them. But why? Why did it happen? Well, notice what the serpent does here. Look at verse 3. Or rather, look at verse 1 in chapter 3. The serpent comes to Eve and he says, Did God actually say that you may not eat of the tree of the garden? As if he's saying, God said that? Christians believe that? Get with it, Eve. Of course that makes no sense. I mean, that fruit isn't very different from that fruit. And if you can eat that fruit, then what's the problem with eating that fruit? And then the serpent says this in verse 5. Look, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see what the serpent's saying here? He's saying you can't trust God, Eve. He is keeping something from you. And this lie of the serpent, this is the lie of the serpent that, that the serpent has been telling ever since. You can't trust God. He's not good. He's not right. Don't trust him. You know better. Maybe the serpent's telling you to, to change the definition of God. A, a, a good God would never have those kind of ideas. A, a good God would never say anything like that. Did God really say did God really say that? It's the voice of the serpent. Isn't that a little embarrassing to believe in the 21st century? Did God really say that? Did God really say that you can't take revenge on this guy? Did God really say to be generous and to not spend all of your money on yourself? You know, we've been singing this song, My worth is not in what I own. And the voice of the servant, that's a, that's a great song. The voice of the servant says, is that right? Because it sure seems like your worth is in what you own. It sure seems like your worth is in how much acclaim you have and, and in how people like you and, 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 and how much power you have. That's where your worth is. Did God really say that? Did God really say you can't have sex before marriage? Such an old idea. Did God really say Pray for those who persecute you. Radically care for the poor. Humble yourself. And on and on and on. This is the voice of the serpent. You can't trust God. He doesn't really love you. He doesn't really have your best intention in mind. He's keeping something from you. Why did sin happen? Because the serpent broke our trust in God. This is why we sin. This is why we always sin. We fail to trust God. We fail to trust God's order. We fail to trust God's way. Why are some of you not very generous? Because you don't trust God. The serpent has gotten to you. Why are some of you not honoring God with your bodies? You're not pursuing health. You're not disciplined with exercise and what you eat. Why? Because you don't trust God. You don't realize that your body is a temple from God. That's why some of you are sinning sexually because you don't trust God. You believe there's something better than obedience out there. This is why, this one's convicting, this is why some of you don't take a Sabbath. 
You work all the time because you think you know better. You think that ultimately productivity is going to serve you more than God will. That's the voice of the serpent. You can't trust him, he says. You can't trust his rhythms. You can't trust his way. And look, I know what everybody says. Right now, some of y'all are feeling conviction. I know, but I know what's going on. I know what's going on. You're saying, well, look, Jason, and this is, I'm sure this is good for some of you. I'm glad some of these people are hearing this. <laughs> but he doesn't understand my situation. You know, he doesn't understand my, of course, I mean, uh, he doesn't understand my situation. My situation is obviously a little different. And look, here's the deal. There's always justification. You can justify anything. You know, I hear people say stuff like, well, you know, yeah, okay, well, I'm not tithing, but it's not like I murdered anyone. And here's the deal. You can only say something like that if you live a privileged life and you've never been hurt so deeply by someone that you really wanted to kill them. And in that moment, you felt like that was right and that was just. I'm telling you, all of the commands of God, if you're put in the right situation, are hard. They're all hard. You can justify your way out of any of them. But you, you always disobey when you... It, disobedience always begins with this lie, with this voice. You can't trust Him. And, and conversely, obedience always begins when you know that you can trust Him. Real obedience. I'm not talking about... I'm not talking about marketplace obedience where it's like, I'll obey you, God, because I know you're going to give me this. No, I'm talking about obedience. I ob I'm obeying you because you're right, because you're good, because you love me. Did God really say that? Did God really say that? There's something familiar about that voice, isn't there? You've all heard that voice, haven't you? You've all heard the voice. I've heard the voice. We hear that voice all the time. But there's something even like more primarily familiar about that voice. You know, there's a, with, with the risk of getting a little too nerdy here. In theology, people talk about the role that Adam played. And if you're, if you're more interested in, in this, we'll talk about this in our systematic theology class. I'm just going to dip into it today. But, you know, how did Adam have such effect on us? And so people talk about Adam as our federal head, who is our representative. The reason his actions affect us so much is because he was our representative. But people also talk about Adam as our seminal head. There's this idea in Scripture. Adam is our seminal head. In other words, that we were in Adam at the time that he sinned. That, 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 that we were in the, the Bible uses this language, that we were in the loins of Adam. That all of us were, were in Adam. In a sense, we were there. <laughs> we heard the voice. And that's why the voice is, is not so strange. That's why you don't have to teach sin. That's why there's this impulse to sin in all of us. All of disobeying God, distrusting God, it comes pretty natural to us. It comes pretty natural to break away from the dance and begin to dance to a different tune. Which brings us to the third point. We looked at what happened. Man disobeyed God. Man released evil when he did. We looked at why did it happen because the serpent's voice told us to not trust God. But last, how did it happen? How did it happen? If you notice in the story, there's a, there's a reversal going on. There's a role reversal going on. In Genesis 2, God created Adam. Let's go to the next slide here. From 
Adam, God took a rib and made a helper for the man, a, a woman. And again, there, this is not to say that the man is greater than the woman. There's just an order that God established in creation. And, and the man and the woman together, under God, were to rule over the creature. God created the man. He gave him the woman. Together, they're to rule over creation. But what happens in Genesis 3? The creature goes to the woman who goes to the man who sins against God. It's a total reversal of the order that God had intended. And this is the nature of sin. Every time we sin, hear this, every time we sin, we're taking the place of God. We're saying, I know better. I can do better. My way is better. This rule doesn't make any sense because of the second point, because of the why. I can't trust Him. Sin is man taking the place of God. And eventually, with sin, it leads you to put God away. Eventually, if you continue in sin, you'll put God away. You'll pull away. You'll pull away. You'll pull away from worship. You'll pull away from community. You'll pull away from your Bible. You'll pull away. You, you, you can't be confronted with God all the time if you're trying to live outside of His order. I was talking to one of our college students when I was in Birmingham. And there was this guy. He was a great kid. He'd been a leader in our youth group. And he'd gone off to college and his parents were really worried about him because he was, he was doubting his faith. He was saying he didn't think he was a Christian anymore. And so one break, they asked, will you, will you meet with our son? And so I sat, I mean, he was a great kid. I love this guy. We, we're sitting down in my office. We're talking. He's telling me, well, you know, to be honest, I, ha I read this book and having some doubts about my faith. And I just don't see how this makes sense. And, you know, this and this and this. And as he's going on about how Christianity didn't make sense to him anymore, I just stopped him and I said, are you having a lot of sex in college? <laughs> and, and he was surprised that I asked him that because I was his pastor. But he admitted, he said, well, yeah, I am. And I was like, why did he have to get rid of God? It's because he couldn't just keep disobeying God. He knew, right? He knew God's order. And this is what sin, sin, in sin, you always put yourself in the place of God and eventually you'll get rid of God. You'll say, I don't need God. I don't need God anymore. He, he had too much integrity to just keep disobeying a real living and active God. Sin always does this. This is what you do when you sin. We put ourselves in the place of God. This is what I do when I sin. And you know when I'm full of most anxiety and stress, when I have the least peace, is when I don't trust God's order. When I try to put myself in God's place. And in a world where everyone's trying to do this, you know what that world is like? There's a lot of division. There's a lot of hatred. There's a lot of murder. Genesis 4, we see one chapter later, murder enters into the scene. We see dishonesty and jealousy and slander and on and on and on. And no social structure, no matter how good it is, can cure it because there's a bad impulse. This is what sin is. Man putting his place in God. So we've been spending, you know, almost 30 minutes now asking that question, where did the impulse come from? But one of the questions that I asked in the beginning 
that I think we have to look at now is how is the impulse changed? How is the impulse changed? You know, you can hear a sermon like this, and maybe you are feeling a little convicted, and you can say, you know what? There's two things to do. You can say, I got to get control of my life. I got to get control of my life. I got to stop doing this. I'm going to take hold of the reins of my life. And if you do that, you know what happens? You're just trading one bad impulse for another. That's why a lot of people who identify with Christianity, who identify with Christian culture, are some of the worst people you know. Some of the worst people I know are people who say that they're Christians. The people, the people, this is a true story, some of the people that have been the meanest to me in the whole world, so cruel to me, are people who claim the name of Christ. How is that? How, why is that? Well, it's because these are people that they feel conviction, but st- instead of believing in the gospel, they take hold of Christianity and not Christ. It's very easy to say, I'm going to get control of my life, I'm going to be, and, and all that leads to is self-centeredness and self-righteousness, which is where our problem came from in the first place. Now, the, the, only thing that, the only thing that can really change the impulse is where to the depths of your heart you're changed, you're moved. The only thing that can really change this impulse, that really change this impulse, is the gospel. You see, sin is man taking the place of God, but you, the gospel begins with God taking the place of man. Sin is the story of man trying to go up to God's seat, but the gospel begins, as we celebrate now, with with God coming down to man's seat, to be like man. This is the miracle of Christmas, that God identifies with us in every way, even as a baby. Sin is the man and the woman being tempted by the serpent and disobeying, forgetting God's command. But the gospel is about Jesus, who even though he was tempted in every way by the serpent, he never sinned. He never forgot God's command. He loved God's command. Sin is about sinful men and women not loving a good and worthy God, but the gospel is about a good and worthy God loving unworthy and sinful men and women like us. Don't you see? (laughs) How do you get rid of the bad impulse? How do you cure this thing? It's got to be reversed. Something, something that is contrary to it has to happen. And Jesus came to undo this. This is, what, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus came to undo this curse. He came to undo the bad impulse. When Adam was told by, when Adam was in the garden, he was told to obey God. And if he did, that obedience meant life. But when Jesus came, and he went to the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, he was told to obey God. And you know what that obedience meant for him? It meant death. But Adam disobeyed and Jesus obeyed. When Adam was told to love God, the one who had made him, he didn't. But when Jesus was told to love man, the one who was trying to destroy him, he did. Don't you see? Even though we don't love God, he loved us. And if you see this, if you see this, if you experience this, it gets you off of the throne. It gets you down from the place of God. If you begin to see this, you begin to really see how good He is and how much you need Him. If you begin to see this, it, it undoes the lie. It undoes the lie that God doesn't love you. You all sin because you believe that lie. You heard the serpent's voice and you believe it. If you really see the gospel, it undoes that lie. How could this God who loves you so much, who proved His love in the cross, He loves you. How do you want to know that you're worthy? 
Look to the cross. You know, we, we've been singing this song, my worth is not in what I own. And you know, all of us, because we believe the lie that, we, we all set out, we, because we believe the lie that God doesn't love us, we all set out to prove our worth. I, I want to be worthy. That, that song presupposes that that you're supposed to be worthy. Deep down you know that. And so we're always out trying to prove ourselves, trying to show ourselves well. And you know what, in this town, I'm gonna be honest, it's, it's, it's easy to fall into that. You know, I go around and I meet with interesting people that are smart and that make a lot of money and that like take their family on spring vacation, break vacations to Bali. And I'm thinking about like our little trip to Stone Mountain that I was feeling pretty good about. And think, man, I'm not that interesting. I'm not that worthy. No, my worth is not in what I own. My worth is not in what I do. No, I have a God in heaven who loves me, who's proved his love for me, who pursues me. And if you believe that, if you believe that, oh, there's so much poise that comes with that. There's so much freedom that comes with that. You can trust God's order. There's peace there, don't you see? That's what the gospel does. It undoes the curse. And more than that even, more than that, the gospel undoes evil. When Jesus was on the cross, when he died, in his death, evil was crushed to death with him. As it says, the curse of sin that follows me, that bids my soul to die, was crushed by Christ, our Savior King, who drank damnation dry. In his death, Jesus put evil to death. And his life, his resurrection, marks that all things are being made new. As another old song, Charles Wesley said, No more let sin and sorrow grow, or thorns infest the ground. He comes, he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. From Jerusalem all the way over here to Atlanta, Georgia. Don't you see what Christ has done? In our sin, we put ourselves in the place of God, but in Christ, God has put himself in the place of man, in the place of the cross. And he has shown in that no deeper love and no greater salvation. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that these things that uh, I have said I pray are from you, I pray are, are empowered by your spirit and that you, Father, now would do work in our hearts and in our minds. You would undo the damage of the curse. You would undo the damage of the serpent's voice and you would restore us and heal us and that we would find worth and love and life in Christ that we would understand everything in Him, Lord. And so, Father, I do pray for the person right now that is feeling unworthy because they know that there is a sin in their life that they need to to repent of. But, Lord, I pray that even now, as they repent, you would remind them of the worthiness that they have in Jesus that he freely gave himself for them because he loves them. I pray, Father, right now for the person that's trying to prove themselves, that's that's trying to prove themselves, they're trying to make a name, they feel so unworthy based on their neighbors or their siblings or maybe their parent. Father, remind them that their worth is not in what they own. Their worth is in Christ. 
just drink deeply his love today. Father, I pray that you would just remind us that you're holding nothing back for us, but your intentions for us are good. May we not believe the deception that Eve and Adam believed. May we just trust you and dance and dance and dance, Lord, to the song that you are playing, to the truthfulness of your word. I pray you to do this work in us, Lord, for the sake of our good, but ultimately for the sake of your glory. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.